Welcome to another edition of Campus Life, uh, the college side of our shows here at Campus DeCanton. As always, I am Austin. And this is Colin. Uh, thanks again here, everybody, for joining us this week. Um, and just, you know, we kind of did this on the last episode of Canton Bound, but we'll do it here again on Campus Life just because we've seen an uptick in listeners recently. So if you are a new listener here with us, welcome to the show. Um, like uh, we said in the opening, this uh, part of uh, the episodes here, it comes out usually Sunday, Monday, somewhere around there. And it is all college talk, college fantasy football, recruiting, um, you know, just just basically everything that you can think of associated with college football. That is what we discuss over here. Um, so, uh, again, you know, feel free to keep checking out the website, guys. You know, response has been incredible here over the past couple of weeks at campus to Canton dot com um, and check out some of the other pods that we have over here on the network now with Debbie Debates, um, hosted by myself, Felix Sharp, Matt Bruning and Why Wait Till Sunday, hosted by Alfred Fernandez. Um, oh, go ahead, Colin. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I mean, we have a great team over there and a great family of podcasts. And, um, you know, there's been a little bit of talk about, you know, potentially Jarek starting one up at some point here. He's kind of like working on figuring out what he wants to do. But, you know, we're looking to add that one then at some point as well. But, you know, I think all of those podcasts bring something that's a little bit different to the table. We, we have a lot of fun stuff playing. We had a, a partner meeting the other night, uh, I guess, was it Friday night? Colin, that we that we talked about uh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah and um just uh the the plans that we have coming are there's some really fun stuff that i think are, you're gonna want for your leagues this year so yeah for sure and you know some of it will be for um, subscribers to the site and members um and some of it will be free as well you know we're trying to find a good balance of that stuff yeah yeah. Um, <clears throat> so before we jump into the show here, I think inquiring minds want to know, and, and, and I think I want to talk about it because I haven't really talked about it outside of with my wife and in our little uh, text chat that we have, you know, you and me and, and your brother, um, with the WandaVision ending and just kind of what we thought about the show as a whole and our, the concept of it and how it ended and where it's pointing things as a whole i'm sorry if you guys you know if there's listeners that don't like wandavision or you know the marvel movies at all um but that's seems to be the hot cultural topic nowadays so that's what we're going to lead off here with yeah and anybody who hasn't watched the show or listened to it you know spoilers are are ahead potentially here so you know you may want to skip ahead to maybe a minute like eight or nine um check back in then at that point we'll probably have moved on yeah, so I mean, the finale itself disappointed me a little bit, and not really. Like, I really enjoyed it. You know, I think it ended the series really well. I think it was the ending that probably needed to happen. Um, it's just really hard not to get caught up. Like, I don't read the comics at all. You know, I've, I'm not that into it. I watch the movies, and they're enjoyable, and um, it's something that you know. Now that my wife is into it as well, you know, Kelsey and I sit down and we'll watch um, those together, and we watch WandaVision together. Um, so I, I didn't necessarily, I didn't have like any preconceived, you know, theories about what I thought was going to happen. But then I got caught up in some of the stuff that was coming up online and some of it, I didn't even know what it was, but I was like, oh, this really cool guy, everyone says he's going to show up and it's like going to save the day. And, um, you know, the, the ending was a little more um, subdued than that, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying there with the ending being a little bit more subdued and a little bit disappointing especially with because I, I, I really liked episode eight i thought it really episode eight where they dove into like wanda's background and they talked you know 
they they brought up like a lot of the stuff with Agatha, um, you know, and they, they delve into that. I really liked that episode, um, and then the way they ended it too, episode eight, like kind of put you on on notice for for the finale. Um, and I don't think it disappointed. Like I was mildly underwhelmed with it. You know, I, I still really liked it, but I think you're right. Like there were just a couple of different things that like I I thought that they could have done a little bit differently. Um, you know, and I think it would have been even better, but I still liked it a lot as it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I realized once we were going into episode, you know, then that nine was the last episode that we were going into it. It was probably going to be like 40 minutes max. And there were like all these storylines still to sign us up. I was like, this is either going to be the most rushed pile of garbage ever, or we're just not going to have some stuff resolved. And you know, I mean, knowing Marvel, I trusted it was more the second one that, or, you know, it, it wasn't going to be a pile of garbage. It was probably going to be the, just, this is going to lead into, you know, the next phase of Marvel. Um, so, and Scarlet Witch is like, is one of my favorites. Her and Doctor Strange are my two favorites. So, um, I'm excited because I think this kind of leads into seeing a lot more of those guys over the next couple of movies, which makes me very, very excited. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be like, they're kind of focusing a little bit more on that side of things for this next phase here. And there's, um, what Doctor Strange in the multiverse is a of show. Madness. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's a movie. I don't think that one's a show. They're doing a movie. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I like Doctor Strange too. I really liked that. So I'm glad to see him starting to get a little bit more screen time there too. Um, plus, anytime you can get some Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, sign me up. <laughs> um, he got he got uh, a nice soothing way of talking. Yeah, he does. This, we'll have to we'll have to try and get him on the show. That would that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think you're right though. There's definitely some storylines there that like we we wanted to get resolved, and they just you know they're pushing it off till probably next season or they'll like get into a little bit more in you know maybe in a different show or a different movie in a different way but i think my my only like real complaint is and i said it in our text like i don't know i just don't buy that anybody other than tony stark and ultron can combine to create a vision a guy like vision a synthesoid like that i don't think that hey was hayward was his name right hayward mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think Hayward and his guys could could do that. I don't I don't buy it. I I was okay with that part because the like they because they, they really emphasized it and I think maybe it was still a little subtle um in like those middle episodes where they were saying that anything that Ed was entering there and coming back out like the the hex like it was being altered, you know, at, like its core level, you know, people and items and they used that drone like the, you know, the the yeah. mind stone powers from that to bring back you know, a thing that was formerly powered by the Mind Stone. So I guess that that made sense to me. Um, I wanted to see more White Vision when he, like, he gained, like, sentience and then just, like, flies away. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, that's, like, hilarious that, like, you build a yeah. super weapon and, like, in two minutes he d discusses philosophy with the thing he's supposed to destroy him and then just flies away. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, you know, that was a really good try. <laughs> you know, the idea was there. Um, and that whole ship of Theseus. Uh, <laughs> scene was just like because i'd heard that thought problem before kelsey hadn't so i'm sitting there you know like oh this is like really really funny and kelsey's like what are they saying like what what is going on here and i was like i'll explain later to shut up like i'm watching <laughs> i'm watching the visions talk <laughs> yeah i had never heard that theory or whatever before so like that was new to me but yeah i, I don't know i just i was a, that's where that's probably the part where i was left a little bit underwhelmed um yeah like i said i didn't necessarily buy them being able to create that. I know that they used like 
some of the you know the mind stone powers that came out from the drone from the, like when it came out of the hex to help out with that but they seem to be pretty far along in creating that as it was so i don't know i, I just i feel like that vision is just the type of a, a guy that could only have been created by tony stark and then ultron really my my i will say my big thing on that was like um if you if you're trying like the I feel like this was foreseeable on Sword's part just because you know if you're using the Mind Stone which was you know inherently what created Ultron in the first place you know that and combine like you already had the, you know the the base of Vision coming out of the hex and you were going to use that to power up a different um, version of him I feel like there was it was almost um, inevitable that whatever the thing you were creating was going to revert back to the old like vision you know what i mean like i think that there because of how it was put together like there was only one outcome for it to to eventually become um so i like that that was what was weird to me i also can't figure out what monica's powers are yeah like at all very unclear to me (laughs) i mean she ate those bullets and then she can like see like you know the spectrum of like whatever like i i don't know what her powers are if they're like useful they'll probably use in like some really niche way to like bring down the big bad in phase four and i'll be like oh okay now i see but yeah i see and i don't i don't really follow like the comics or anything like that with marvel or i mean i I don't really follow them that closely with DC, but I have read some of like the DC comics because I like Flash a lot. Um, I really liked the Justice League, so I've read some of those, but I haven't read like anything Marvel related. So I don't know what her powers are going to be. I'm sure we could look it up online and figure it out, but then that kind of ruins things. So I, I try to avoid doing that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's enough WandaVision discussion, <laughs> um, and we can move on to the actual. Football yeah, here now, which is what I think people have have come here to listen to us. Yeah, hit us up on Discord or or our DMs if you want to keep talking about WandaVision. Yeah, I can talk about that all day. Um, so we really only have one news piece here, and we're going to kind of um, come at it from from two different kind of angles uh, because the fallout has the potential to be pretty massive, and it's this Title IX controversy and at at LSU right now. Um, there was this investigation that was concluded this past week that just detailed, you know, many, many counts of uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment um, and then harassment beyond that to keep people from reporting. Um, you know, there was they basically had like one Title IX coordinator for the entire campus. So like even if people wanted to report stuff like it just wasn't going to happen because there were just, you know, nowhere to really go. Um, and so that, that is just kind of the gist of it. I know a lot of the fallout has focused itself on Darius Geis, who we don't care about for this show. And to be honest, we probably don't care about for the other show either. I think this is like the, with a final nail in his coffin, I can't really see him ever playing any sort of organized professional football again in any league. You know, he can't go to Canada. He's not going to, maybe he'll play in this thing like Josh Gordon and, um, and uh, what's his name or and Johnny Manziel? Like I don't, I don't understand what that league is. So someone I don't needs to send me a message and tell me what that league is. I have no idea. Um, but so uh, we don't care about that part of it. But as it relates to, I guess we'll start with Kansas because Les Miles was the head coach at LSU when this all went down, and now he is at Kansas. Typically, I wouldn't really care about Kansas, to be honest. This would be like the part where we give like thirty seconds and move on. But they did bring in these two recruits this year. You know, Quadarius Davis. 
who chose them over like USC and a couple of the Texas schools. And then Devin Neal, who our compatriots, Alfred has been really banging the drum for rightly so as, you know, a, a really strong running back recruit in this class. So do you think depending on what happens with less miles, we see something happen with those two? Well, I think with Quadarius Davis, like you said, he was connected to USC. Everybody kind of thought that's where he was going. And it was a kind of a, it was a pretty big coup for Kansas to snag him. Um, and this is the type of thing where I could potentially see this devolving to a situation where they're like, they let people out of some of those commitments. Um, you know, like it, there was, um, who was it? Brown going to Tennessee. They ended up letting out of their commitment there, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah, um, they did. Yeah, so I, this is the type of thing where I could see them being like, okay, if you want to leave, you can leave, um, you know, because he hasn't gotten to campus yet. He hasn't, uh, you know, th obviously the fresh his freshman year hasn't even started yet for school. So, you know, he could still potentially leave. I could see that that being a possibility for him. Now, Devin Neal, he's from Kansas, and he had five offers. He had like a couple other decent offers, including uh, Kansas State and Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma State. Um, so he had a little bit of other interest as well, but he's from Kansas. He was always connected to Kansas. So I think he'll probably end up sticking around. Uh, but, you know, now that leaves you with the question of, you know, do we, do we want any pieces of Kansas offense? You know, because Les Miles is, you know, administrative leave, you know, indefinitely. And I think the writing on the wall there is he may be, you know, he may get fired probably with cause, I would assume. Um, depending on how the investigation and everything like that goes. But they brought in uh, a new offensive coordinator this year. It's their fourth offensive coordinator for Les Miles since he's been there. And that's Mike DeBoard. Mike DeBoard is 65 years old. He hasn't coached since 2018 at Indiana. And he started his career as an O-line coach at Franklin College in Indiana in 1982. And in he went to Michigan for as an offensive coordinator in the 90s, made a little bit of noise there. They went to head be a head coach at Central Michigan from 2000 to 2003, and he went 12 and 34. And then he didn't really do anything. He was the OC at Tennessee for 2015, 2016, Indiana 2017, 2018, and just nothing. So, you know, very uninspired hire there. At this point, I mean, I like Neil. I, you know, I'm with Alfred, but I, you know, from a fantasy perspective, kind of out on the guys from Kansas until at least we get a little bit more clarity on this, or until they bring in somebody who's, you know, actually done something as an offensive coordinator. Yeah, you think with Kansas, you know, I, I understood the reasoning for going out to get less miles because you hope that he has enough of, uh, you know, a reputation in the industry and the the game as a whole that he can bring some other kids in. But Kansas is never really going to recruit those guys. Like you might, you might every once in a while get a Quadarius Davis or a Devin Neal, but you're never going to get enough, in my opinion, there in, with that strategy. You know, focusing on the big names to really turn things around. I think Kansas needs like a a builder type coach. You know, um, you know, I, I don't have like anyone in particular off the top of my head, but you know, you go to like a Mac school or a Sun Belt school. Or one of those types of programs where, you know, Kansas is, is crap, but it's still probably a step up in the in the ladder from where they are that has shown they can build something in one of those schools. And then you bring them in and have them kind of try to start from the ground up. Because I don't I don't think Les Miles 
has done that in a while. I don't think he was just equipped to do that here. Um, but I do think Miles is gone because there were, you know, obviously part of the investigation, or at least that I don't even know if it was part of this investigation, because I know it was there was a 2013 investigation. And then I think this investigation like <laughs> included that in it, just saying, like, uh, well, this happened in 2013. It's already been documented with less miles was also accused of sexual harassment. So like his days are totally numbered. Um, that whole story with him, that is like so weird. Yeah, with like text messages to like to, to like female students, and I mean, I, I don't know what that one was from 2013. I didn't look into that. That was from 2013. But there's that, and then he said like he wanted to bring in. I believe the quote was like pretty blondes. Like he wanted to surround the program with that, like you know, in in, in any capacity that he could. So you know, that's yeah. It just gets a little bit weird from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I think with, with less miles there, I think the writing's kind of on the wall. I think he's, he's going to be let go at Kansas. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really all we have to discuss about Kansas, you know, those two guys and then the team is pretty much crap Yeah, outside of it, to be honest. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about what they should do moving forward. And I think if you can't get a guy who's like a program builder, which I think that might be tough to do at Kansas, you have to go like completely other direction, like just run the triple option, you know, go get a bunch of athletes and just do that and try and be like Georgia Tech was before, you know, earlier in their career and upset a couple guys here or there. Try and be like Navy or Air Force or something like one of those Naval Academies. Just just go that route because you're never going to Kansas is never going to be a national title title contender. They're probably never going to be a big 12 or a, yeah, a big 12 title contender either. So. At that point, you know, just just go a different, completely different direction. They were good that one year, like a decade ago. That one really, really <laughs> weird year. Um, they were like in the top ten, weren't they? And it looked like they might make the national championship game for a while, and then uh, they lost a game late or something like that. I don't remember what the story was there. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, Kansas isn't a recruiting hotbed. You know, no. there's not really a lot there. Even if you're keeping all those kids in state at Kansas, like that's that's really not enough. And then. I think your recruiting strategy there basically has to be, you know, let's just find all the kids that fall through the cracks in Texas. Yeah. But you're not the only person doing that. Like, you know, Texas and Oklahoma and Texas A&M probably get the first shot at all the kids in Texas. But then after that, you have Texas Tech, SMU, TCU, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, even probably Iowa Nebraska. State. Yeah, I mean all those all those schools, you know, that's their strategy already. So I don't know if you can really make any sort of advances there just based on how many competitors that you that, that you have um for for a lot of those guys. Yeah, which is that's why I'm saying just like go in a completely different direction than everybody else, you know, resign yourself to what you are, your basketball school. And, you know, if you have some success in football, that's awesome. But like I said, you know, maybe you pull off a couple upsets here or there running the triple option against a team that's not expecting it or, you know, because defense in the Big 12 is typically subpar. So, you know, you may be able to, to upset an Oklahoma doing that type of an offense, but you're probably not going to have any like major success with it. But, you know, you give you a w big win here and there and it's something you can point to and something that the, f uh, the boosters and the fan base can get excited about. Yeah. So similarly, then I think if you talk about LSU, um, you know, there's probably going to be some fallout there. 
I think we've seen in the past that punishment for these sorts of violations is not anywhere on the level that it probably should be. You know, it's the equivalent of a slap on the wrist. I don't know if this really affects LSU. You know, I was reading an article in Athletics saying that Ed Orgeron really isn't implicated in this. You know, a lot of this happened pre-2016 or so, and he took over like five games into that year, I think. Um, So, you know, I'm not sure this takes him down. And if it doesn't take him down, then, um, you know, maybe they lose some scholarships and, you know, maybe they can't play in a bowl game or something like that. But, you know, LSU is LSU, and I just don't see them, you know, I I think they come out of this relatively unscathed. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem there, too. And part of the thing is the the athletic director who was at um, LSU at that time, too, he already resigned, so he's gone. They have a different guy there. Uh, So, I mean, maybe he gets... Maybe the new guy, Scott Woodward, gets canned at some point or he ends up resigning in air quotes, maybe. But, you know, I, I, I have a hard time seeing anything like that happening. Now, you know, they, there's some of these reports, like there's some pretty horrific details in some of the reports. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to go into them. You can look that up yourselves. There's, there's you know, Google, uh, you know, you can find anything on there on Google there. But, you know, people reportedly feared coming forward because there were afraid of like one particularly influential booster who was named in um, an article I was reading on DeFacto. I mean, I'm not going to mention it, mention the name on here. You can go find that pretty easily. But, you know, they were, people were afraid of this booster and all the power that he had. So, and I don't know if that's going to change or anything like that. I mean, boosters kind of stick in the shadows and, you know, he's a pretty influential guy in general. So, I don't know if anything's really going to happen to him either. You know, maybe they make him stay away for a year or something like that, but I don't really think anything's going to happen on that front. So at that point, you know, you don't, you're not really getting rid of the the problem, which is just kind of like the culture that had been there. And this guy who, you know, wants to suppress people coming forward. So, I mean, you and you, you talked about some of the penalties, but you know, LSU, self-imposed air quotes penalties this year um and that was they lost eight scholarships over two years uh with reduction in recruiting visits recruiting communication and player evals and then they added a bowl ban for the 2020 season they were five and five when they imposed those punishments and that bowl ban so okay cool you you imposed a bowl ban for yourself for 2020 a covid season which was wild anyway nobody really you know some teams who were bowl eligible didn't even go. So that's just, that's nonsense. Like that, that's not an actual punishment. You, you may not even have made a bowl game anyway, but I mean, because it was LSU and their name, they probably would have gone to something, but nothing of consequence because they were five and five, you know, they weren't good this year. So, you know, beyond that, maybe they get a bowl ban for 2021. Maybe they lose another scholarship here or there, but I think this is just kind of the same thing that you see all the time. Like you said, it's just, a slap on the wrist, people move on and people forget about it, unfortunately. Yeah, and just my last comment on it here, I think that this story shows everything that's wrong with college football, more or less, yeah. um, in terms of you know insulating these players from any sort of punishment, uh, the, these high-powered boosters that hang out in the background and face zero, like they're, they're, for, there's, this is a, this, there's no losing here for that guy. No. You know, he gets to keep all of his money, 
you know, he, he's obviously if you're a big time booster like that, you're you know, you have a, a ton of money. You're you're basically just sitting on a giant castle or a giant mound of it. Yeah. Um, you're not implicated in anything. You get to continue to support the team that you love, and you probably got to see some good years. You know, we always joke about you know, like Reggie Bush took his Heisman away, like they took his Heisman away. Everyone still remembers Reggie Bush's Heisman. You know, like yeah. that, they were good years. You can take away the title or whatever, but the memories are still there. So he got he got to enjoy all of these things happening at LSU. You know, multiple national championships, um, high powered recruiting, all of that stuff. And ba- and basically gets out of it. Where he's like, oh, okay, now we stink for two years, but I'll keep pumping money in, and we'll be good again. You know, I just think that's everything that's wrong with college football, and you know, it won't change. But I really wish that it would. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. It's it's like you said, it, you know, it's something that you, people don't like to think about. Uh, you know, they want to see college football for the entertainment value, for the great storylines, for all the positive stuff. And this is some of the stuff, the negative aspects of it that are, you know, kind of pushed aside and occasionally they come to light and then people push it back aside again. Um, I will say the only thing with this particular situation is the U.S. Department of Education has gotten involved with it. So now it's like a federal uh, case uh, relating to the Cleary Act, which like I said, it's a federal law that requires college campuses. If they receive federal funding, you have to issue warnings and threats on campus and make all that information public uh, about some of the different crimes that happen on campus. So now that it's a federal case, you know, maybe we see a little bit more, but I'm still doubtful. Yeah. Um, so enough of that. I think let's move on here. We um, we have another freshman spot spotlight as we have the past couple of weeks. We each chose one player again this week. Um, we both chose pretty highly rated guys this this week. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of bouncing all over the map with that. Um, so Colin, take it away. Yeah. So like you said, we, we talked a little bit about mid tier quarterbacks last time. And, you know, we're we've we've gotten pretty deep into some of our freshman spotlights, but with you know some of the drafts that people have coming up, we figure we should probably get into some of these higher end guys a little bit more. Um, so you know the guy I'm going to talk about here is Drake May, the quarterback going to UNC. Uh, he's a four star guy. He's the number six pro style quarterback, um, and he already has a prototypical build. He's six five two ten. Um, you know he's a little bit on the taller side there for what I like. Like six five is like right at the edge of the height. Like I kind of look for because anything beyond that, and you know you're, you know, kind of lanky. You can't really move that well. You know, you're looking at guys like Paxton Lynch, uh, but Drake May is, you know, he's he was very productive in high school. He had 3,200 yards uh, passing, 35 to five TD INT ratio as a sophomore, as a junior, 3,500 yards, uh, 50 to two. Uh, TD to INT ratio, then another 201 yards and six TDs on the ground. Uh, now, he didn't play his senior year in, U- in North Carolina because they didn't play uh, football there. So, But he was originally committed to Bama uh, and then flipped to UNC. So he was one of the, one, one of the quarterbacks that kind of shaped this, the QB landscape a little bit with some of the, his flips and decommits, you know, some of the guys like, um, him and Jake Garcia and um, Brock Vandegrift. Uh, you know, so those are some of the guys that flipped their commits and really like shook up this class. But he was originally committed to Bama, and then he went to UNC. And his his brother is Luke May. So anybody who's a basketball fan uh, might know Luke May from his time playing basketball at UNC. And Drake May was actually a really good basketball player in his own right. 
Uh, he averaged a double double uh, as a sophomore or as a junior, 16.1 uh, points per game, 11.3 rebounds. And he was a number 80 uh, recruit in North Carolina, which is a pretty big basketball recruiting hotbed. So that was actually he's a pretty strong basketball uh, athlete as well. But I was reading an article that said he really fell in love with the game of football during his junior season and, you know, go or see, sophomore season and then into his junior year. Uh, and he was really upset that he couldn't play his senior year this year because he just started to really develop a passion for playing quarterback and he wanted to go that route instead of basketball. But I mean, he's, he's a very good quarterback here too, in his own rights. Like I like him a lot as a prospect. Uh, he's a very strong arm. He throws a nice deep ball, some good touch on it. So he's a very good vertical passer, uh, but he also has a really good uh, fastball. And he puts a lot of velocity on the ball in the short and intermediate throws. Um, so he definitely has an NFL caliber arm strength. Very good. Very good there. Um, and he's very sound mechanically as well. Like, I like his footwork on his drops. It's a very natural throwing motion. He's a quick release, um, which leads to like good overall accuracy. And I like his ball placement too. He, he leads his receivers well at most times, especially deep. Uh, he throws some nice back shoulder throws. Um, so he has a lot of promise in the ball placement area. And he shows the ability to move through progressions at times. Now, he's mostly a rhythm passer, and that's mostly what the offense was looking at in high school there, too. So he didn't have to make too many uh, like full field reads. He didn't have to go through progressions beyond one or two. So it is something I do want to see more of. Uh, but you know, there were times where you could see that on tape. So I think that's something that you could project that he might be able to pull uh, or, you know, build upon. And he looks really good throwing on the move too. You know, he's a, he's a pro style quarterback, but, and he's a true pro style quarterback. You know, he doesn't have great mobility, but you know, he is moving on the run. You know, he gets his shoulder square. He doesn't lose any strength on the ball. Um, and you know, he delivers a strike most times. So, you know, while he can get outside of, of the pocket, create a little bit outside of structure, like I said, he's not a mo uh, dual threat quarterback, so it's certainly not a strong suit of his. Uh, but he does have enough mobility where you know he could pick up some yards here or there, but he's more of a strider as a runner. Um, so he's not really somebody that you want taken off too much. Um, but he's the my QB6, um, and he's the 22nd overall freshman for me. But every time I watch him, I start to like him a little bit more. You know, and I try to look for a little bit of ways to move him up. Uh, you know, I haven't yet, but he may move up a couple spots here by the time that uh, spring ball rolls around because, I mean, he's going to UNC, and they have Sam Howell there, so he's not going to get on the field right away. But after Sam Howell goes, which we can pretty much assume that he's probably going to leave after this year, uh, I think it's going to be the Drake May show. So I think he's got a lot of potential for year two and moving forward. Yeah, that's that was my big question for you. Do you think that he definitively, you know, from what you've seen, is pretty clearly an heir apparent? Um, or do you think he could be, is there a possibility that he's a guy that comes in there as highly rated and doesn't really do anything. And then they're left looking for the next guy anyway. I mean, there's always a possibility of something like that happening. Um, because I was listening to Debbie debate, um, from last week where you guys got replaced, uh, and Katie flower, uh, diva of Debbie brought up a really good point that, you know, quarterbacks more than any other position, like the star ratings don't seem to matter as much. Um, you know, there's pretty big bust rates for some of the higher rated guys and some of the best quarterbacks um, of, of recent memory are, you know, low star guys. Um, so quarterbacks, a very difficult position to, to get a good feel for because there's so much of the mental side of the game that you just, we just can't see. 
And we just don't know how these guys are, are going to develop from being, you know, 18 year old kids, high school seniors by the time they get into college and stuff. So there's definitely a possibility of that. But I really like, I, I think he shows a good mental side of the game. I like his mechanics, I like his tools. So I think he's going to be the pretty clear heir apparent there. And UNC has had some really nice recruiting classes lately, but they're still not really connected to any of the top quarterbacks that often. Um, I mean, Drake May is a North Carolina kid, so he and his brother went there, so he probably is, you know, reasonably one of the highest rated quarterbacks that you could get to flip to UNC. But you know, after that, I don't, you know, most of these kids are looking to go to Bama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Clemson, Georgia. You know, those types of schools. So I think while UNC is in that second tier below, I think they still typically are going to miss out on those top end quarterbacks. So I don't see them, you know, recruiting over him to bring somebody else in. Yeah. I mean, it's UNC is not exact. It's not Bama, you know, where they, you know, open the closet and there's, you know, four different Bama, you know, five star quarterbacks and they kind of flip through, you know, which one yeah. do I want to say? You know, like it's their, their wardrobe. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So I, I think that May will, at the very least, get like every opportunity to do something there, um, just based on that fact. Um, and I, I haven't, I like him. I just haven't watched a ton of him yet, like to sit down and have a a fully fleshed out opinion. Um, so now I'll have to to go in that with that that in in my mind and see if I if I agree with you. Um, I chose Jacory Brooks here for today, uh, wide receiver going to Alabama, five star kid, a number two wide receiver in the composite. Um, he hails from, as a senior, at least he went to IMG, you know, the famous IMG. He was JJ McCarthy's guy there. Uh, the two of those guys teamed up, but before that he went to Booker T Washington high school, which is near Miami. It's kind of just outside of there and has a junior. He put up 99 catches, 1251 yards and 18 touchdowns. Like, you know, that's, that's, okay. that's, that's pretty good. You know, for, South Florida there has pretty high level high school football. Um, crank out a lot of really nice athletes every year. So um, definitely, definitely dominant in high school. He was listed on 24 seven at six, three, one eighty five, and Alabama. Cause he's an early enrollee. He's up on their website and everything. And they have him at six, two, one ninety. And that actually surprises me because I definitely thought he looked every bit of six, three. Uh, he, he's really, really tall, um, but moves very, very well for that size. Um, it just surprised me when I went on just to check that and saw that, I mostly went on to look at weight gain and then I saw he lost an inch as well. So I don't know what happened there. Um, but I think Bama is usually pretty good with their measurements. So maybe he is six, two, I don't know. Um, his skill set, movement skills, like I kind of was just saying, you know, at, you know, whether regardless if he's six, two, one ninety or six, three, one eighty five, he has a very smooth mover for his size. Um, he can do in high school, they let him do a lot of, yak stuff you know bubble screens and stuff like that um and he was really good at it and i think that he can probably do some of that in college i don't think he'll be asked to do a ton of it just the nature of the other guys that they bring in there this year you know that's not necessarily what they'll have him doing at least probably not early but i do think that he can um so and it's going to be one of those things where if we don't see him do it in college we're going to get to his um, you know, like his, you know, if when he gets to the NFL draft, we're going to be saying, you know, well, we never saw him do yak stuff. You probably can't do it. So I think we just need to keep in the back of our minds that he can, they just may not ask him to really do that there too much at Alabama. Um, but as a result, you know, he is very versatile. 
You know, I don't think he could play big slot, um, but I, I think he's a true, you know, X outside receiver, but he can just do a lot of different things. You know, I think by the end of the time he graduates, he'll have a pretty um, you know, well fleshed out route tree. He can, he'll be able to do most of that kind of stuff. Um, and he can succeed beyond just that, you know, in a bunch of different roles, you know, as a possession guy, as a big play guy, as a red zone guy, I think he could be able to do a little bit of any of those things um, with, with his skill set. Um, his body control and catch radius are pretty, pretty good. He has uh, several back shoulder type uh, catches where he, you know, just goes up over a guy and, and is able to contort himself, get his feet in. Um, so I think that's how they're going to use him early. I, I would be pretty shocked, you know, if, you know, the, if, if for a freshman to get on the field at Alabama, you almost have to be like, they, they'll try to like specialize you that first year just to kind of get your feet wet. And so if he's to see the field, I think that would kind of be his specialty, you know, red zone guy, um, I think situations like that. Um, and just other stuff. So he did a lot of special teams, kick return, punt return at Booker T. He did not do it that much at IMG, uh, which is to be expected because, you know, they're bringing in like the best of the best athletes. So, you know, you don't necessarily need that guy because you probably have a guy that's, you know, like 5'8", you know, 170. <laughs> like that's what he does and he's really good at it. So um, let's let the, the specialist handle that. But I just like seeing those kinds of things. You know, I talk about that all the time. That it just kind of shows you that a team, and not only do they have that skill set, but the team trusts in him and, and to be able to, to, um, to handle that kind of responsibility. So situationally at Alabama, I think there's two main points to talk about with him that just cannot be ignored. One of them is awesome, and one of them is, a, is like slightly worrisome. Um, and I guess I'm a glass half full guy. We'll start with the, the awesome. Returning production at Bama. So Alabama passed for roughly 4,600 yards last year um, between Mac Jones and Bryce Young in mop-up duty. And they lose 425 yards from Najee, about 1,850 from Devonta Smith, about 600 from Jalen Waddell. And if you're doing the quick math in your head, you're saying, well, that's a lot. And it really, <laughs> really is. <laughs> they, or returning production-wise, you know, out of the 4,600 yards that they passed for last year or so, they bring back about 1,750. You know, John Mechie comes back and he had 55 catches for 916 yards, six touchdowns. Slade Bolden, who, uh, you know, he's not even competing with, but, you know, you at least have to account for the yards. Uh, 24 catches, 270 yards, one touchdown. And their two tight ends, um, uh, Miller Forrestall and Jaleel Billingsley, combined for 41 catches, 540 yards, and four touchdowns. So, yeah, if you add that, and there's like a negligible amount of yardage, you know, Brian Robinson had like 20 yards, Javon Baker had like 20 yards, like no one else had any sort of significant um, statistical um, production. So just, you know, that, that's a ton of yardage. It's almost 3,000 yards that they have to account for. Um, now it is Bama. There's always talent there, but it's a lot of unproven talent. And to be honest, I don't think – you know, last year they brought in three four-stars, Alabama did, in Javon Baker, Ty Jones-Bell, and um, uh, Treshawn Holden. And then they also have um, like Xavier Williams, who's an older guy on the, the team who's been around for a while. Um, but I don't think any of those guys are near the talent level that the guys that they bring in this year are, um, which kind of leads me to point number two, which is that crowded recruiting class, and that's the not-so-good part. And, you know, not only is it crowded just from a numbers perspective, you know, they're bringing four wide receivers in a single class, but they're all like top 10 or 12 guys in the composite. 
And for my money, I have them all. The worst one for me is Christian Leary at wide receiver six. If you want to call him the worst one of the four. So, and, and the guy that, you know, um, Brooks won't be competing with Christian Leary or Jojo Earl, who are both two of my you know big favorite guys. They're more undersized Jalen Waddle, Henry Ruggs type, you know, in that offense, but they also bring in a GA hall who is my number one wide receiver in the class, just ahead of Corey Brooks. who I have number two, I think they profile similarly. And so I do worry just a little bit, you know, if one of them gets the jump on the other early on here and starts getting some snaps, can the other one catch up? And is there room for both of them on the field at the same time? I think yes, but I don't think that's guaranteed. No, I think that's uh, the biggest point there that you brought up is like just this stacked recruiting class right now. And somebody has to be left out of that group. Like you can't have all four of those guys be, you know, as productive as the last four that they had, you know, with uh, Smith and Judy rugs and Waddle, you know, I mean, I think they can have guys step in to, into to those roles similarly, but I don't think you're going to see them, you know, fall into those exact same roles. Plus there's already some guys there who are, you know, like Mechie who's established. And I think one of uh, Jones, Bell, Baker and um, uh, Holden, uh, I always forget Holden. I think one of those guys is is going to have a role there. I mean, I don't think all three of those guys are just going to get recruited over and then just, you know, see you later. So I, I just feel like somebody in this group is going to get left out. I think it's going to be Christian Leary, which is the reason I'm so low on him. I mean, I'm the one dragging his rate ranking down in our rankings. I have him ranked at 78. Um, just, you know, I, I don't love his game. I think he's just a worse version of Jojo early, be honest with you. So I think he's the one who's going to be left out. But the reason I'm so low on him is because I, I just don't think there's going to be that opportunity for him. But Burks is, uh, or not Burks, Brooks is my number one receiver in this class, just ahead of Jojo Earl. So I like both of those guys a lot. And I think both of those guys are going to get onto the field early. So I have Brooks as my wide receiver 14 overall. Like I said, uh, wide receiver one in this class. And I think he's going to get on the field early, like you said, even if it is just as a specialist type of a role. But I, I think he's probably my favorite for the X role there. I, I just, I like his skill set a lot. He has that alpha skill set. He has the frame where he can add some weight there, whether he is 6'2, 190 or 6'3, 185. You know, I think he can add even more weight, probably like another 15 to 20 pounds on that frame and not lose a lot of that fluidity that you were talking about. Um, you know, and another thing that I really like about him is he has a quick release off the line. Like he gets on top of these uh, cornerbacks very quickly and he's work on varying some of those release moves because he has, he uses the jab step release the most. And like, that's, that's good. Like he's good with it, but he needs to continue to develop those. But, you know, and the other thing, you know, he ran a four, eight, three 40 at the opening, but, you know, like like you were saying, like he's he's actually he's a good athlete. Um, he returned punts, and I think he's definitely faster than that four eight three time shows. So I'm not really that worried about that. So he's got the skill set. You know, he's got the speed as well, the athleticism. He has some solid parts of his technical game there because um, I think he's a pretty decent route runner as well. And I think that he's just going to get on the field early for. Him. Uh, Alabama and really separate himself there. 
Yeah, no, and it's it's a school now where you off you're, Alabama was not synonymous with offense for years, and now I think it kind of is. You know, Saban has embraced that the game has changed. For what you say, whatever you want about it, Nick Saban, he's always done that very very well. So I think they are well positioned, especially with Bryce Young there, to continue kind of that um, the theme over the next few years while he's there. Um, so our last little, uh, bit of the show here is a 2023, this or that. And what we're essentially going to do here is we chose a battle or two at a bunch of different positions here for the 2023 eligible class, you know, last year's true freshman. And we're going to basically say, you know, we had to pick one out of the set and it kind of explain why we are going that direction. Um, so we'll start off here with quarterback. And I think just the natural starting point when you're talking about quarterback in this class, just as it was for Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence, you know, their, their fates in college and going to the pros here still are, have kind of been intertwined with each other over the course of their careers. So will be Bryce Young and DJU. So Colin, which, if you have to choose one of those two guys, which are you choosing and why? So if you had asked me this time last year, and really even up into the fall, I would have gone with Bryce Young. I had Bryce Young as uh, ranked a little bit ahead of DJU um, last year at this time. And I like both of them a lot. I think they're both very, very talented quarterbacks. I think you're right in that this is going to kind of be a Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields 2.0 saga here. You know, where these guys are going to be compared to each other the whole way up through. They're both going to be productive. They're both going to be top recruits. Uh, and top NFL draft picks, but when the time comes, but I ha- I do have to give the edge to DJU. Um, you know, I like I said I liked Bryce Young a little bit more, but you know Sark just left there, so you know I'm not exactly sure what Bob's Bill O'Brien is going to bring to that offense. Not exactly sure how that's going to work. So that's a little bit of a question mark. I, I don't really knock Young too much for that, but that combined with the fact that we've seen two games from DJU this year is enough to have him just ahead of Bryce Young for me. But I'm not faulting anybody for taking Bryce Young. I still like Bryce Young a lot, and they're very, very, very close. It's very, very close for me too, um, for the reasons that you stated. And um, I liked Young a little bit more. Yeah, I think DJU is getting the boost this year, like you said, just because we got to see two full games out of him. Our February ADP has DJU at 2.6 and Bryce Young at 4.6. Really not a whole lot separating them. If you want one of them, you have to have a top five or six pick. I think the latest that we saw either of them go was Bryce Young when it's seven in one of these drafts. Um, And I think that's more than fair. And I think that they'll continue on as two early round guys. Um, I guess... uh, uh, and because they're so close in value, you can't even say like, well, at value, I'd prefer one or the other. There just really isn't a difference. So I guess I, I'm going to take Bryce Young. I think with the weapons around him, you know, I trust. Uh, I mean, uh, Clemson always has wide receivers as well. That's not necessarily an issue. I just like the ones that are at Alabama a little more than the ones that are at Clemson cur- currently. And I think that might be the difference um, between a kind of production in college and that's, you know, if we think they're both going to be good NFL pros, then something's got to separate them. And I'll say that that's what I think separates the two of them over the next two years. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you highlighted all the reasons why I like Bryce Young a lot. Um, 
But then if you, you know, on the other side of that coin, you want, you want to look at DJU. And I mean, he has a cannon of an arm. He's got all of the, you know, size, you know, that you look for. He's mobile as well. Um, I, you comped him on um, the Double D's podcast the other day that you did with uh, Kevin. Um, you comped him to Dante Culpepper, and I like that a lot, actually. It was the first time I'd heard that. Um, I think that was a good one. And, you know, people may not really remember how good Dante Culpepper was at times. I mean, that Minnesota Vikings offense, when he had him uh, with him and Randy Moss, and Chris Carter, you know, that offense was fantastic. And, you know, I, I, he was a very, very good player. So I see a lot of that in his game as well. So, you know, like I said, on the other side of that coin, you know, DJU has all of the tools that you look for, where Bryce Young has a lot of them. Um, he doesn't quite have the arm strength, though, that, that DJU has. And DJU is a potential high uh, draft pick in baseball as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, we'll be debating this for the next three years, so we'll definitely revisit this at some point, I'm sure, down the road. Um, the other two guys that I chose here, and I think I chose these two not only because, you know, they're kind of two of the next guys you think about in this class, but also because I think their situations are kind of similar uh, with CJ Stroud and Hudson Card. And I know, uh, I mean, Stroud has Kyle McCord to deal with coming in this year. They're both, you know, top, top quarterback uh, prospects within their recruiting classes, going to be battling it out all offseason. Um. And then Hudson Card, who, you know, I think you and I both prefer Hudson Card over Casey Thompson, but there are some people that suspect with how good Casey Thompson looked in mop-up duty in that bowl game last year that maybe he gets a crack at the starting job as well. So two guys that might be in the position where they're really, really fighting for that job going into 2021, but both also have the potential to be QB3 in the class. Yeah, so this is maybe this is just a little bit of the Matt Bruning influence on me here. Um, but after also hearing Alan True on Debbie Debate last week say that he thinks McCord, you know, has a very good shot to win that job, I'm less sure of CJ Stroud than I was, you know, a couple weeks ago. So I like CJ Stroud more than Hudson Card last year. I like CJ Stroud, but you know, up until very recently, up until the McCord chatter starts to get cleared up. You know, I'm I'm more confident that Card is going to be the starter there at Texas, and we delved pretty deep into that uh, in that athletic article a couple episodes ago. Um, and I I think that Sark went to Texas and he made the comment about you know looking for a place that had a quarterback that he really liked, and I just have a hard time seeing that be Casey Thompson. You know, Casey Thompson looked great in mop up duty in that bowl game. Uh, you know, and yeah, he is the incumbent of sorts air quotes but you know i he hasn't really done anything beyond that one appearance to stand out and it's a new coaching staff a new coaching regime uh, hudson card was a very high level prospect you know he's he's a guy that uh, people on that coaching staff like we mentioned in that athletic article were comping to aaron Rodgers of sorts so I think that Hudson card while, while casey thompson is definitely going to have a shot to win that job and it's definitely not solidified I think Hudson Card is going to come out of that, and I'm a little bit more confident in that than I am with C.J. Stroud now. So I have Hudson Card as my QB6 and Stroud as my QB7. So it's really splitting hairs, but uh, give me Card. 
Uh, yeah. So I have Stroud rated just a little bit higher as well. Card has definitely probably of all the quarterbacks seen the biggest bump in my rankings this year uh, or this offseason. Just, you know, the nature of Sark going there, feeling a little bit better about that that whole offense there. And they have some solid pieces around him. So I, that has really boosted uh, boosted my my thinking on him. I think I'm going Stroud. You know, I'm still banking on Stroud winning that job. I think it is going to be close. You know, this isn't some runaway where I'm just presuming that Stroud wins because I think he's clearly the superior player. I think it's very close. And I think the only thing, like, and I know Matt says this all the time, you know, well, he was there last year, but he didn't really, it wasn't a normal season. So there weren't as many walkthroughs and reps and practice and things. So Matt discounts the year saying, you know, he wasn't really, he was on campus, but he wasn't really on campus, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I still think that was valuable for him. And um, I just think, you know, regardless, that offense is probably going to be pretty darn good at Ohio State. You know, they're kind of like Bama and Clemson, who we just talked about, where they have all those pieces around them. And Texas, while they have Bijan and, you know, I like some of their receivers, they're obviously not depth-wise and even, you know, at the top on the same level really as Ohio State is. So I just think, again, you know, like what separated the first two guys for me was kind of supporting cast a little bit. I think CJ Stroud supporting cast separates him a little more, even if it's less certain that he wins that job. So I will probably take CJ Stroud. No, that's a really good point about the supporting cast there. I mean, Ohio State just continually churns out high-end receiver prospects. They continually bring in high-end receiver prospects. This year's no exception. You know, they have a very crowded room, which is something that affects all of those wide receivers in people's rankings as well, which is something we can get into at a later date. But, um, you know, Texas, I'm with you there. I don't really love a lot of the weapons that they have. Um, so, yeah, if you're if you're factoring in the weapons there, then definitely CJ Stroud would get a bump. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, so let's move on here to running back. And this is kind of where everyone's really excited about this class as a whole. Um, so the first one I put, so uh, B. John Robinson versus the field. And I like I, I batted around kind of putting in, you know, versus Gibbs or versus Bigsby. But I think it's very clear that any one guy that we put up against Bijan would probably Bijan would probably be the winner for both of us. But once I said the field, you know, this opens up a lot more possibilities. It's kind of like the old back in the day where it was like Tiger versus the field. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and he'd go to like tournaments and the line was still like ridiculous and Tiger would still win. That's kind of how I feel how this discussion is. But Colin, do you like, the, are you still taking Bijan? Yeah. Uh, Bijan's my, my RB one, um, you know, Debbie C2C in every format. Uh, I like Bijan a lot. I have him ahead of Brees Hall. Uh, and you look at our rankings, um, you know, everybody has Bijan at one, except for Matt who has him at two. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear how we feel about Bijan. And when you do factor in the field, now you have you factor in, you know, big rises from guys like Bigsby or Gibbs or Zach Evans, who Zach Evans was very, very highly recruited as well. Like those Zach Evans and Bijan Robinson were neck and neck in the recruiting rankings. Um, you know, so you know, you could potentially see a rise out of him. You know, McClellan, if he scoop, you know, takes over the lead duties there in Alabama. Um, you know, and he shines there. I think you're going to see a lot him shoot up people's rankings, but I just, I don't think anybody's going to jump Bajan for me. I like Bajan a lot and 
if you even if you give me the field and you give me the choices of everybody else, I still feel a lot better about Bijan becoming the RB one or maintaining the RB one status the whole time. Yeah, no, I think that's um, that's totally fair, um, and I, I feel the same way. You know, I don't think that that um, that that anybody's going to surpass Bijan for me. Um, I think that's pretty clear at this point. And so I'm going to take, you know, the tiger bet. I'll take Bijan as well. And we can keep that one short because I, I figured that it might still be the case, but I at least had to try to make it somewhat close. Um, I think that's just kind of the level that Bijan is as a prospect. Um, the other one that I picked out here, I think is a little closer and I'm interested to see, cause I actually don't have any idea who you're going to choose here is Jace McClellan <laughs> versus Kendall Milton, both guys that are kind of, you know, a periphery of top five for a lot of people right around that range, both crowded backfields, both, but still top tier kind of guys going into, you know, as recruits and both flashed last year. So do you have a preference on one of those two guys? Yeah. So uh, like you said, they're both very crowded backfields. They're both backfields at Bama for McClellan and Georgia for Kendall Milton that both tend to split touches pretty, you know, pretty evenly amongst a group of guys. But one of the biggest separators for me is Bama lost their lead back from last year in Najee Harris. Uh, they do bring back Brian Robinson Jr., who, you know, I like him, you know, and he's a guy that people were, you know, kind of touting as a little bit of a sleeper. But, you know, I don't think he's anything that's necessarily going to keep McClellan from taking that role. You know, I think that McClellan, other than his seniority, I think McClellan could definitely seize that lead back role for Bama. Whereas with Georgia, you know, Zamir White is back. You know, Kendall Milton was fifth on that team last year in carries. Uh, so, you know, he was behind guys that are all coming back. Zamir White had 144 carries. Kenny McIntosh had 47. James Cook, 45. Dewan Edwards, 35. And then Kendall Milton with 35. Or thir- John Edwards had 37. Milton had 35. So, you know, while I like Kendall Milton, and you, you said he definitely flashed last year, all of those guys who are ahead of him are coming back. So now you're looking at he would have to jump four other guys uh, to become that lead back there. Where I think that McClellan has a lot, McClellan has a lot easier path to becoming the lead back on that backfield. And they also, Georgia also does bring in Lavassier Carroll as well. So now you're adding another guy to that mix. So I like Milton's talent, I like McClellan's talent. Um, but I, uh, you know, give me McClellan over, over Milton there, just cause I think he has a better shot at winning that job overall. And I have McClellan as my RB nine and then I have Milton at 15. Okay. So that, that's, those are pretty darn close in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Um, I feel similarly. So I had, I think Milton is the better running back of the two, to be completely honest. I really do. Um, I had him rated higher last year going into the year and then, um, uh, then, you know, I thought he, he flashed enough where I was like, it, it confirmed what I thought about him. Uh, I, but I, you know, I completely agree that touches are going to be scarce here, at least for another year. And even after that, you know, I don't think he'll ever be like the guy there. Whereas Jace McClellan very well, maybe after this year, you know, I don't know because they, they too brought in, you know, Kamar Wheaton and they always have another guy or two in the pipeline. So um, I, I have them ranked like right beside each other, but I have them flipped. Actually, you have McClellan, you said nine and Kendall Milton 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have Kendall Milton nine and Jace McClellan 11. 
So both very, very close. But yeah, as of right now, I think I actually am going to take Milton. Um, you know, maybe he doesn't produce as much, but I feel confident at that point that with how highly ranked these two guys are, that I can go out and find another running back that can produce a little bit while I wait for him for a year, maybe. Um, I know that kind of just is separate from what I said about the quarterbacks earlier, but uh, running backs a little different than quarterback, in my opinion. You know, I feel a little a little better about about um, going to the the bargain bin for some fill-ins there. Yeah, there's definitely like running backs that you can find that'll have like high end production on your C two C side there. Um, you know, that'll that you can fill in that production with until Kendall Milton potentially does take over the lead back role there. You know. Zamir White will be gone after next year, presumably. Same with James Cook. Um, you know, I don't think Kenny McIntosh is anything special. I don't really think Dewan Edwards is either. Um, I do like Lavoisier Carroll, but I like Milton more. So I do think I, after next year, Milton does have a, a decent path to becoming the uh, you know, lead back there at Georgia. But by that time, Jace McClellan could already have solidified the lead back role in Alabama, and now he's rolling into it as the clear-cut lead back you know, going into the next year. So, you know, I think they are very close and that their situations are very similar. So this was a good question, but I think I'm going to take McClellan here. Fair, fair, very, very fair. And I think that'll be a very interesting battle, you know, in terms of those, those two guys over the next few um, years and both could be, I think this could be another case where just a lot of those guys, you know, like last year's class, there's a lot of second round running backs. And I just think, you know, that class could see a lot of those guys go in that Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins type range, um, and teams will be happy about that. Um, wide receiver. I only put one down here um, just because I knew we had a lot of other stuff we were talking about here today. But we'll dig into a lot of these wide receivers more because I think there really is, you know, after Boutte and then maybe even Rakeem Jarrett, who separated himself a little bit from the pack, there are a lot of guys that, depending on whose rankings you look at, like, you know, three through ten or whatever, like they can all be – kind of shaken up. So today's discussion is Jordan Addison versus Marvin Mims. And because I think they profile fairly similarly, you know, to the NFL rule wise, I think they, they do about the same, you know, they're both kind of versatile, a uh, little undersized, so to speak, you know, they're not traditionally sized alphas and the nature, you know, the situation's different, but I think it could limit some of their production over the next couple of years in college with Jordan Addison. You know, he's a pit. He has Kenny Pickett for this year, but then Pickett leaves and there's no telling who the next quarterback will be there coming from a pit fan. I have no idea. I'm not even sure that he's on the roster yet to be completely honest. And then Marvin Mims, who is, you know, kind of like these running backs in a situation where it's just a lot of mouths to feed. And I'm not sure that he's, you know, by far the number one guy in that, in that offense that would get those touches. Yeah, oh, I mean, I think you're definitely right there. I, I don't think Marvin Mims is anywhere close to being the number one, solidified to be the number one guy there in that offense. I mean, they have Hazelwood, who got back a little bit at the end of last year and I think played in two games uh, after that injury. But, you know, so he, while he was back for two games last year, he missed pretty much most of the year. You know, getting him back is going to be huge. Charleston Rambo does transfer out, um, you know, but they have Theo Weiss there. And, you know, Theo Weiss is a chance to be that guy there. But I like Mims' game. Uh, I like his game a lot. I mean, he's not huge. He's 5'11", 177. Um, you know, so he's got decent height. Definitely needs to put on some weight. But for a guy that size, 
I love his red zone game. I mean, he had nine touchdowns, you know, this past this year on 37 catches, which is probably unrepeatable, like that kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of a split. But I don't think nine touchdowns next year is unrepeatable. I think he's going to get more touchdowns or I mean, more receptions next year than 37. So, you know, while nine touchdowns is a lot, you know, maybe he's closer to eight. But I think his receptions will be up, you know, 45, 50. So, you know, I don't think he necessarily has to keep that same production. Um, and then he had 610 yards on those 37 catches. So that was a 16.5, you know, average yards per catch. So he was very productive in limited work. And he's the first wide receiver in Oklahoma history to earn freshman All-America status um, for the FWAA. And he was second team all Big Ten, too, as a, as a, uh, as a freshman. You know, he's by PFF. Uh, they had him as the number 94 overall player and the number nine wide receiver from this past year based on his production. So, you know, he's pretty highly thought of there. Um, and just as like a little note, uh, he's an engineering major. So, you know, he seems to be a pretty smart guy there as well. So you like to see that. But also he's the te- Texas high school state record holder for receiving yards with 5,485 and in a season with 2,600 receiving yards in a season. Um, as a senior, he had 2,600 receiving yards, 32 touchdowns on 117 catches in Texas. So mega producer from Texas. You know, great production in his first year at Oklahoma. So while Jordan Addison probably has a clear path to dominating the touches there, uh, I don't think that's really arguable at all. I mean, Jordan Addison is going to be the guy at Pitt for a while. You know, I think that, yeah, and I like Jordan Addison a lot as well, but I like Marvin Mims a lot. You know, all of the numbers there really points to him being a future stud potentially at the NFL level. And if you go into Jarek's player metric database on Campus to Canton, you know, these guys are so close in a lot of these advanced metrics. They're, they're neck and neck in adjusted yards per team play. They're neck and neck in weighted dominator rating. You know, two of the more advanced, you know, two of the more predictive advanced metrics there. So, these guys are both, I think, very, very good players, both potential future studs. But I'm going to take Mims. Uh, I have Mims as my wide receiver 11 and Jordan Addison as my wide receiver 17 right now. Yeah, um, I pretty much agree with all that. This is the first discussion that we've had, though, where I can bring out the, you know, the the not so fast it, because the values that we're seeing in ADP so far between these two guys is the first real gap that we're seeing in any of these discussions. So Marvin Mims currently has an ADP of 24 and Jordan Addison currently has an ADP of 43. And this is my only problem with Mims. I like Marvin Mims. I'm just not sure that he is so much of going to be the guy at Oklahoma or that he's going to produce so well with so many other receivers there that it's going to make worth it worth taking him 20 picks, you know, almost two full rounds over Jordan Addison when Addison, I think, profiles pretty similarly, has probably similar NFL outlook, at least through one year, in my opinion. I think they're pretty close. And so, you know, Mims is the one is probably the one guy that I look at the ADP um, that like I actually like the player in the ADP, and I just think it's a little too high for him even at what i what i think of them so at value i will take jordan addison yeah i mean i didn't know 
there was that big of a gap in their in their ADP. Um, so that definitely makes it more interesting and definitely makes it closer. Uh, but like I said, I just I still like Marvin Mims a lot. And then even if he is the number three wide receiver there for Oklahoma this year, um, even if Hazelwood and Weiss are ahead of him, you know, both of those guys are are should be gone uh, next year, I would think. So then it, at that point, you know, next year he steps in and he is the guy there. Now he would be catching passes from, um, you know, Caleb Williams, which I don't necessarily love. But if he's still the guy on Oklahoma, I think that's a very productive role. Yeah. Yeah. Oklahoma receivers, you know, they tend to do, do pretty well in college. Um, so I think, and that's another one where I think we're just going to be debating that for the next couple of years. And we'll definitely revisit and talk about some of the other guys like Jermaine Burton, Quentin Johnston, you know, some of those guys in that freshman class that pseudo broke out last year. Uh, but we we want to see another year of development because I think that'll start separating some of those guys. Um, last debate, and I think this is one of the more intriguing ones that we have here, which has been uh, really changed uh, because of recent circumstances with Eric Gilbert versus Michael <laughs> Mayer. You know, Gilbert, there I'm seeing a lot of people saying now that they think he goes the JUCO route for a year. So you know, Fantrax doesn't have JUCO on it. <laughs> you know, you're not getting that production um, and could potentially hinder his NFL draft draft prospects. You know, I don't I don't really know that for sure. Um, so, Colin, if you have to choose now between Michael Mayer and Eric Gilbert, has the gap closed enough to you where now you're thinking maybe you're taking Mayer? Yeah, man, that's that's a tough one. Like with with Eric Gilbert there, I just I don't know what's going on with that situation. I've heard a lot of speculation that it's grades. And like we talked about uh, last week too, if it is grades and he can't get into Florida with his grades, like where can he go? Like he may have to go that Juco route. So with all of that in mind, like I like Eric Gilbert a lot. I really do. I think he's, you know, he, there's a reason he was the highest tight end recruit in 24 seven sports history, you know, very good player, but Michael Meyer was also a five-star guy. And Michael Meyer tied for his team lead in receptions at Notre Dame this past year as a freshman tight end, you know, at a school where tight ends, you know, they kind of grow on trees at, at Notre Dame, like Notre Dame constantly is producing good tight ends. Um, you know, just ask Felix about Tommy Tremble. You know, you're going to hear Tim talk for, <laughs> for five, 15 minutes about Tommy Tremble. But, you know, Michael Meyer outproduced it significantly. He had 42 catches, 450 yards, two touchdowns this year. The leading receiver for uh, Notre Dame was Javon McKinley, 42 catches, 717 yards, and three touchdowns. But McKinley's gone, as is the number two receiver, Ben Skoranek. Um, you know, he's gone as well. So there isn't really any, there's not that much returning production there for, uh, for Notre Dame, except for Michael Meyer. So, you know, I, I don't know how many more catches he's going to get than 42. I don't think he's going to, you know, have 60, 70 catches, but I think he's pretty much a lock for like 50 catches and then five to 600 yards, uh, you know, a couple touchdowns there, maybe a handful, maybe like five or so. I think that's a very reasonable expectation for him. And when you're looking at that kind of production from a tight end in college, that's that's extremely valuable. That's difficult to find tight end production in college and a guy who's a pro prospect. So with all the uncertainty around Gilbert, you know, I do have Gilbert ahead of him in my rankings now, but obviously things have changed with uh, 
you know, all the news about Gilbert, those, those rankings came out before the Gilbert news. So they're one, two, but I would, um, I, I would take Meyer, I think at this point. Uh, I still haven't made my decision yet on which guy I like more. I know I was hoping like as you talked and as this whole episode went on that I would maybe come up with some sort of decision between the two. I really can't. And I think if that's the case, then, you know, Gilbert going in the second round, another one of these at values where if Gilbert's going in the second round and Mayer's going in like the late fourth, early fifth and all these drafts, then I think the choice is pretty clear for me that I would rather have Mayer at that spot knowing what we know right now than I would at Gilbert, you know, Gilbert at his spot, knowing what we know about him. Um, Cause you can get, you know, Jace McClellan or Kendall Milton at that spot and then get mayor on the back end where, you know, if you, if you flip them and you try to take that tight end early, then you're looking at, you know, Austin Jones, DeMarcus Bowman, like that's the ranger in. And I like both of those players, but I don't think, you know, I'd just rather would have the the flip side of that than, than Gilbert and the lower rate of running back. Um, so yes, at value, I agree with you. I will take mayor. Um, but at the same time, you know, if I have Eric Gilbert in a league, like I do have him in a, in a C2C, I'm not selling him for cheap now that I have him because I still think he's a really good pro prospect. Yeah. I mean, I'm not selling him either. Like now is the wrong time to sell him. Um, you know, everybody's pretty uncertain with him. Nobody really knows what to do with him, which I think you're going to see the ADPs of Gilbert and mayor start to converge as you know. People are unsure of what to do with Gilbert. I think he falls from that second round ADP, you know, probably look into the three, four range. And I think with him falling and people wanting to lock up an elite tight end prospect and some production, I think you could see Mayer start to rise a little bit. And, you know, now you're going to start to look at both of them probably around the fourth round. So I think those ADPs are going to converge a little bit. Um, Obviously, we'll have to see how that kind of shakes out with these mocks that we've been running. But I think that having Eric Gilbert, I don't, I honestly, I don't know how that's going to work in fans tracks. If he goes to Juco, like, can he stay on somebody's roster? Like, I don't know how that would work. Yeah. I mean, I've had drafts before where like, you know, a freshman draft and a guy, they announced that, you know, he's, he's going to Juco, you know, he's not going to whatever school he's supposed to go to. Usually you can retain the rights to them. And I think like in that league, I just had to leave a roster spot open or something like that. Um, so it wasn't right. like a big deal. I, that's a good question. Like, I don't know if Eric Gilbert will physically be on fan tracks or not. This yeah. Year. That's they, what I'm saying. I mean, if they go Juco, he might just be taken off of there. I don't, I don't know. Um, that's, that's a very interesting question. I don't know how they'll handle that. Yeah. And I think that at that point, if he's not on fan tracks, now it's, you know, now it's kind of league based where, you know, some commissioners might let you have an open roster spot and you just say, hey, this is for Eric Gilbert. And other commissioners may be like, no, this is, we're only doing players that are on fan tracks for this. So I think that opens up a whole nother world of, of questions about Eric Gilbert too. Yeah, um, I, I think we just want to, it's a TBD. You know, let's see what happens this offseason. If he gets into Georgia or something, you know, that maybe we feel better about what's happening with him than we do right now. Um, but again, you know, buy low opportunity because of that. So I think that's our show for tonight, guys, or for today. Um, you know, just general housekeeping, please rate, continue to rate, review the show. I'm looking right now at the bid I have in for the signed jersey that we're thinking about giving away, and it's holding real steady with about three <laughs> days left on it. Um, we'll see if it continues to hold. It's a really good player, uh, freshman from, or no, a rookie from last year. Um, it's, it's his college jersey, but a guy that broke out big time. And so 
it, you're going to want to, and it's free. If you rate, review the show, let one of us know, either, you know, email us campus If you're a member on the website, go on the discord, shoot us a message, or you can hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Debbie Dietz. Colin is at C2C Decker. Um, again, just thank everybody for the support for continuing to come to the website. We have more stuff coming. Um, so, uh, yeah, just yeah thank you guys so much and um we're we're gonna continue keeping this thing growing yeah yeah we're not gonna stop the podcast like we said before like this is something that we're just we're all we're both super passionate about we're gonna keep this thing going but who but you know now you can finally find written work from us so if you do enjoy our our podcast uh, you know you can check out some of the written work there as well yeah yeah um so i think that's it for today as all or um as always i'm austin and this is colin And have a good week, guys.